Hi, it's Dave. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by Simon Barnett. He is the genomics analyst at ARK Invest. And we've got a special episode here. We're going to really dive into this genomics revolution, what's going on, how to understand it, and what companies are at the forefront of it. Simon, I want to welcome you on my channel. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dave. Thank you for having me on. It's great. Awesome. So I've listened to um, several of your past interviews, and I'm actually quite excited. I've got probably the most notes I've ever printed out for any uh, interview. But what I've decided to do, because genomics is such a, um, I want to say complex, it is complex, but it's also the terminology is, is in a way there's a learning curve and there's so many companies um, disagreeing with each other on what's the right approach, etc. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, in a sense, almost toss all my notes in a sense, and I want to take a step back. And here's my objective um, of this discussion here. I want to see if we, I could try to um, understand with your help the three, let's say, major key developments, like tr key trending, um, kind of undeniable, you know, forces of technology or advancement that's going on right now with genomics. And then with each one of these, let's dive into like what's going on. Where is it? Where is it, has it been uh, coming from? Where is it headed? What are the key companies? And so. Um, because I know there are like 20 or 30 different topics we can cover, but if we can focus just on the three key defining kind of developments of genomics, I think all of the others might fall into place and we can really have a better grasp of what's going on. So um, if you're okay with that, let's go ahead and start with maybe number one. And you don't have to actually decide number two and number three until we kind of get to that because we might, you know, you might refer to something else already while we talk about number one. So yeah, what's the key um, top, let's say, defining trend or development in genomics today um, to help people understand? So I think the big one, that especially this year, is really topical, and I'm happy to get into it, is sequencing. You know, it's, it's right up front and center for the other people that you've had on from ARC on the show. I know you talk a lot about cost declines. It's something that we do and we try to track across all of our different technology domains. So maybe let's just start with sequencing, because really it is the platform upon which everything we're gonna talk about today, whether it's diagnosing disease earlier to finding out precision treatments for disease and even non-human applications, right? Agriculture, industrial manufacturing, right? All of it sits on sequencing. So maybe we'll start there and open our history books back to the early 90s in the, the Human Genome Project, which many people may have heard about before. So really what this was, was a decade-long uh, effort to sequence for the very first time the entire human genome, all three billion A's, T's, G's, and C's that make up the alphabet of you and I. I mean, and everybody on this call, 99% of our DNA is identical. You know, the last 1% is what makes us different, right? And all organisms on the planet also share the same code, right? So you can see how universal it is to have a machine that can sit on your desktop and read that, right? So the Human Genome Project took about 15 years uh, and it cost about $3 billion to sequence that first human genome. It took thousands of scientists from all over the world cobbling together uh, you know, a system for doing that. And in 19, I'd say about the end of the, you know, the 1900s and then right around 2003, we, we stamped and said, hey, look, we did it. We, we sequenced the first whole human genome and now all of a sudden we're going to open this new era of precision medicine. Uh, didn't quite happen. All right, so, so let's, yeah. let's um, ask a, a quick question there. So if you're talking to an eight-year-old and he's like, 
what what in the world? How does a machine like sequence a DNA like a gene? Like how did they even get in there? How do you even find you know what's in there? You know what would you tell um, someone like that? Yeah, let's do it. So you know let let's start with the let's start with any cell in your body. Right, there are trillions of them. We can take a sample, whether it's spit or blood or anything like that, and we put it into the front end of this process, which is called sample prep. And all it involves is a bunch of laboratory steps to make that sample ready for sequencing. So it means cracking the cell open like an egg, taking the DNA out. And remember, DNA is a very fragile physical thing. You know, we're going to talk about DNA as information, as sequence, and you can think of it that way. But just remember before that, it's a real physical thing and we have to be gentle with it. So then once you do that, and I can, you know, I'm happy to describe how sequencers work, but from a bird's eye view, you get the sample ready. You load it onto a sequencer, and then that uh, instrument will generate, you know, the, what are called base calls. You know, what's an A, what's a T, what's a G, what's a C, and then downstream of that, you can have all sorts of algorithms that do tons of different things, right? So that's the that's the lay of the land. Now, if you want to get into exactly how sequencing works, how do you go from this like goop of material <laughs> into yeah. you know computer digits, right? Because literally, this is an analog to digital conversion process. Right. And so um, I think a good place to start is actually with Illumina, which is, you know, still kind of the dominant DNA sequencing, um, you know, monolith in the space, something like 85, 90 percent market share. So most people who are studying sequencing for the first time are generally exposed to the Illumina technology, which is called sequencing by synthesis. So I'll give a very brief overview into exactly how this works. So. Um, Illumina's technology really embodies the principle of massive parallelization. And what I mean by that is instead of taking a, you know, uh, a three billion letter long genome and reading it from A to Z, which would take ages, what you do is you fragment that into, you know, millions and billions of very tiny little 200 letter long snippets. Okay. And then what you do is you read them all in parallel and it's much, much, much faster, right? So you can imagine like if I am trying to read uh, like Moby Dick or something and I'm just one person, it's gonna take me a while versus if I hire you know, a person to read every page, right? So that's the principle to kind of get across. Now, Illumina's system works by taking those little fragments and flowing them over a glass surface called a flow cell, right? And what happens is those little fragments will anchor themselves almost like trees in a forest, right? So there's thousands and millions of these so-called clusters of, of DNA that are anchored to this little glass substrate. And then there's a camera right above it that is watching these clusters form. And then what happens is you will flow in a series of glowing molecules, right? They're called fluorophores. And they will cycle by cycle, attach themselves to a DNA strand, and they will pulse with a light color, depending on if it's an A, a T, a G, or a C. And the camera registers that, right? And it knows, hey, green is A. So if I see the green, I'm going to register that as an A, start another cycle, and you read down the length of that fragment. So that's how luminous sequencing works in a nutshell. But the way to think about it is, it's a very sophisticated camera. There's a lot of you know, surface chemistry and biochemistry and all these different disciplines coming together 
to be able to create a system that can read, you know, billions of fragments of, of DNA all at one time. And that's the type of what we call throughput, right? The processivity of this machine that we need to satisfy the demands of, of science and medicine today. Um, and these machines, you know, some of them are tiny, some of them can be the size of a fridge. And I'll pause here just to say that there are other types of DNA sequencers. There are other <laughs> DNA sequencing companies, each one with their own unique advantages and disadvantages and happy to get into that. But in a nutshell, that's how sequencing works. So with um, Illumina, um so what is that, um, what did you call that, what do they put onto the DNA strands um, that actually will light up and, you know, tell, you know, decode the, the DNA? Yeah, so what happens is, so if you go back in your mind's eye and mm -hmm. picture the fact that there are these strands that are anchored mm -hmm. with a camera looking down, mm -hmm. what ends up happening is um, over the course of what's called a sequencing run, uh, when you're reading all the DNA, um, that, that run is broken up into cycles, generally about 300 cycles. And what that means is I'm going to flow in a bunch of molecules and bathe it across the surface of that flow cell. And what will happen is these little molecules, they're called, uh, they're actually the same DNA bases that are inside you and me right now for the most part. They're, they're nucleotides. They're just a little tiny molecule, but they've been modified slightly. In fact, this is actually a key enabler of their technology. They're modified with a little glowing dye, right? And we talked about this, right? And they're unique, right? So an A is, you know, a certain color, a T is a different color. All right, so you've got a nucleotide and you've got the dye that's bound to it. And what happens is, and, and this is really important for those who don't know, um, your DNA follows what's called a base pairing rule. What that means is that within the double helix, an A is only going to bind to a T and a G is only going to bind to a C, right? And that's a rigid rule in all of biology. And so if I have a red light pulse, which means that a certain nucleotide came and attached itself correctly, then that helps me to understand if the base that I'm reading, you know, is an A, a T or G or a C. So you can think of it as a slightly modified or engineered nucleotide. And it's actually amazing, right? It's not just a dye. There's actually a physical shield, a molecular shield called a blocker that's also put on it. And the reason why you have a blocker is because you don't want, you know, like 10 different nucleotides to get incorporated all at the same time, because then you have a bunch of different light flashes and your computer cannot register what's going on, right? So that's called signal to noise. Um, and so these little blockers, they make sure that only one base gets added at a time instead of like seven, right? And that keeps everything in sync. Um, of course, things can go wrong, right? There's sequencing error. Um, and, you know, that's an important thing to understand, especially in a clinical context where a single base call that's incorrect could mean the difference between putting a patient on the right therapy versus the wrong one. So it's exceedingly important that these things run well. But the way to think about it is these are, are engineered nucleotide bases, the same ones that are in you and me, but we've, we've tweaked them a bit to kind of bend them to our will. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, can, can you explain like what are, what's the mechanics of these engineered nucleotides, you know, when they um, attach to the, or I guess the DNA strand, like how does it actually mm -hmm. light up to determine whether it's like an A to, a to C bind or a G to C um, mm -hmm. bind? Yeah, so um, the, the base pairing rule governs, you know, which of those four bases is going to bind properly, right? So the T might just bounce off, 
right? For example, but if we know that you know the the correct the correct base pair is going to match, the way that that sort of works is it's the same binding properties that happen in, in normal kind of DNA synthesis inside of our cells all the time, right? So there's a complementarity, and it's a, it's a chemical bond, right? So it, it's 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 actually being you're actually synthesizing DNA on this machine this almost the same way that's happening inside your cells. The difference is, to your point, there's a reporter. There is a, a signal that's generated during that incorporation step. And what's actually happening is a laser light is getting beamed on that dye. And when that happens, the dye will emit all right, a, a wavelength of light that the computer registers and assigns according to how it's been programmed. So there is a combination of incident laser light combined with the fact that each of those four different dye colors is engineered slightly differently and is going to fluoresce or glow a different color, right? And there are variations on the theme, but that's essentially how it works. So like, um, does, does it actually attach or attract? Like, so part of the nucleotide actually attracts to part of the DNA, which causes the, the, mis the emittance of the fluorescent light or whatever, and that's being detected by the computer. Is that the, the gist of it? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Okay. So in, in, in the, you know, the, the, the strand that's being synthesized or excuse me, the strand that gets anchored on the flow cell is called the template. Okay. And then you, you read down the length of the template, right? So you just go cycle by cycle by cycle, reading off these, these colored flashes. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're able to read 200 letter long fragments and know what they are. Right. And then it becomes like assembling a jigsaw puzzle. Right. Cause I remember I said that the human genome, which, you know, you can sequence anything, but the human genome is you know, about 3 billion base pairs or so. And so the challenge becomes now that I'm working with a bunch of 200 letter long fragments, algorithmically, how do I reassemble those into something that resembles, you know, the entire construct? And of course, you don't have to sequence the entire human genome. You can focus on targeted portions of it. In fact, that's the most common uh, clinical procedure is something called a panel, which means I focus my sequencing only on certain regions and I let others kind of go by, right? So that's that's an ability that, that clinical labs have, and it's a great way to save money, right? We don't want to be sequencing the whole genome if we're going to throw away 95% of it, right? So, um, but yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, I mean, how how are they able to target just like a, a section of, of, let's say, a genome? Because, I mean, are you able to, are they able to actually you know, take like a, a gene and actually see where the different, you know, parts, you know, that they want to analyze or go after. Um, is it, are they able to do something like that? Or how, yeah, how, what is the mechanism of actually to selecting a part of the gene to, to decode? So let's go back to what I mentioned about sample preparation, right? Something that happens before you put any material onto the sequencer, because that's where the targeting actually happens for the most part. Now, there are two very common um, you know, molecular biology techniques for focusing a sequencer's attention on specific areas of the genome. Those are called hybrid capture and amplicon sequencing. And I don't want to get into the details necessarily of how they both work, but they essentially do the same thing. And they exploit that same principle of base complementarity that you and I already discussed, which is that A's bind with T's and G's bind with C's. So what happens is, and I'll, I'll use the example of a, of a hybrid capture technique, where I've chopped up my DNA already, so it's, you know, it's, it's all sliced up, and then I can send in what's called a probe. 
And the probe is engineered to be perfectly complementary to the reason that I'm interested in looking at. So what it'll do is it will hybridize or bind to that region that I'm curious to look at, and it will yank it out of solution. And then I can deplete all the other stuff away that I don't want. So I'm physically only left with the material that I'm interested in, and then I flow that onto the sequencer just like I described. So wow. it's a physical process. So how, did this, how does the probe actually attach to the part of the, of the DNA that you want? This, the exact same way that it's happening in any reaction where bases bind, right? There's Got a it. chemical process, you know, generally hydrogen bonding between, um, you know, the the because the, the double helix, right? You imagine it like these these different strands are complementary to each other. Yeah. They want to be attached. When they live alone as single-stranded DNA, they're very unhappy and fragile, and so they're looking for their partner, right? So if you if you put um, you know that material into a test tube and there's complementarity they're going to want to bind and they do right so that's one way that you do it but it's the same base pairing rule mm -hmm. i mean so do they actually send a probe that actually has this complementary sequence so it could bind with the the, the part of the the genome that it's looking for exactly and it doesn't have to be a one-to-one -one match so let's say i'm looking at a gene that is 2000 bases long right mm -hmm. i don't need to engineer a 2000 base long probe, I might only need a 20 or 30 base pair long probe. And the reason is because I'm engineering the probe to be exactly complementary to a region of that gene of interest, right? And then that will pull it out. So it's almost like a little tugboat <laughs> pulling a okay. bigger fragment behind it. I mean, is it kind of like a mag like magnet concept where you have, you know, you're basically, I want to say opposite, but they attract, let's say the pairs, right? And so you don't, if you have a 2000 pair, let's say you just have at different points, you know, connecting or attracting, and that will allow you to basically take that section of the gene to go ahead and analyze, right? Yep. You nailed it. Exactly. Okay. So, so, and that's generally, you know, in chemical engineering, like the, the idea of separating two things, you know, something that you're interested in looking at from something you're not kind of the wheat versus chaff problem. If you understand certain physical or chemical or, to your point, magnetic properties that are different between the thing that I want and the thing that I don't want, then I can exploit that in a way to selectively enrich my regions of interest. And in this case, I'm exploiting base complementarity, which is a chemical property, right, between DNA and, you know, another piece of DNA. This one, you know, happens to be an engineered probe. Got it. So, I mean, this is actually pretty fascinating stuff. So we're talking about, you know, how a sequencer will, you know, identify, right, um, the, the identity of the, of the gene, um, the sequence of the gene, and then also how it can actually send a probe and we can actually analyze a part of the gene. So one of the questions is, you know, with gene sequencing, um, why, um, I guess, has it... Wait, I mean, I guess if we look back at the past, let's say, you know, 20 years or so, um, I was reading one of your notes saying that it's only recently, right, that we've actually completed the, the, the whole human genome. And before that, I guess there were sections where it was unclear. Um, can you explain kind of why it took so long for us to complete the complete genome, what that means? Um, yeah, and uh, kind of give us an understanding of all that. Yeah, this is, I love this topic. So before I get into it, just one, one thing to mention at the beginning, which is that for many applications of, of sequencing, right, which can be, you know, everything from transplant to oncology to rare disease, right, tons of different applications. 
we don't need to sequence the entirety of the human genome in order to create clinical value, right? So, and we can get into that maybe when talking about, um, you know, like liquid biopsy or some of these targeted oncology tests, we can get into that. But I really want to focus on your question about, okay, well, wait a second. I thought that we sequenced the human genome in 2003. What, what do you mean that it wasn't until about 12 months ago that we actually did it? So let me explain that. So in 2003, we sequenced um, the first draft of the human genome, which really was about 90% of it, right? And we just said, okay, the other 10% uh, are too technically challenging for our sequencers to see. And so they've kind of through the years gotten a bunch of different names like junk DNA or the dark genome, but really it's just a part of the genome that was technically impossible for us to see, right? It's not that it didn't matter. In fact, we're actually finding out that quite the opposite, those dark regions do harbor a lot of really important clinically relevant information. So your, your question about, okay, well, why, why couldn't we do it? And the reason why we couldn't do it is because for the past you know, 15, 20 years or so, the Illumina technology, the short read, what's called, you know, those 200 letters is actually, you know, getting close to the maximum for that technology. Um, but those fragments are just not big enough for us to be able to solve all the hard to see regions of the genome. So let me explain exactly how that works. So the human genome we've already discussed is only composed of four different letters. So, you know, it's not like there's a ton of variability. In fact, some sections of the genome are hugely repetitive, right? Where you might have like 80 or a thousand G's in a row, right? And so those regions are very difficult for short read sequencers to access. And the reason for that is imagine if I had a sequence read that was only G's, and I'm trying to align it and map it to a huge portion of the genome that's also only G's. It's very difficult for a computer to have enough context or overlap with the sequence, like the reference sequence, to be able to map through these regions. And so if you look at you know, sequence data, what you'll actually see is something that's literally called a coverage cliff, where the sequencer's data just goes to zero and you can't see into these certain regions. So what it required, and, and you know, there was the paper that just came out, which people can, can read, you know, the, the final completion of 100% of the human genome. The only way that we were able to do it was with a technology called long read sequencing, which is, you know, there are two companies, Pacific Biosciences or PacBio and Oxford Nanopore uh, based in the UK. These are the two predominant players in long read sequencing. And the high level take is just to understand that these machines don't just read 200 letter long fragments. They can read fragments that are tens of thousands or even up to a million bases long, right? And there are some quirks with their data. Some are more accurate, some are less accurate, some have systematic error, some have random error, right? So there's nuances, but the important thing is that with a long read, Mathematically speaking, the likelihood that you're able to like unambiguously place that against the reference goes up extraordinarily, right? And so what we're finding now is that we need long reads to access the toughest to see portions of the genome where unfortunately a lot of medically relevant information is hiding. And if you're going to ask about clinical implications, I think the place where you will see this show up first 
In fact, there's been a ton of momentum building on this from the reimbursement, you know, Medicare, Medicaid uh, coverage of this is uh, whole genome sequencing for patients suspected of having a rare hereditary disease, right? So, you know, you can imagine in a neonatal or a pediatric intensive care unit, parents will, will take their child who, you know, might have very obscure but serious symptoms and they, they want to figure out what's going wrong. Um, now that sequencing has become so fast and so scalable and, and you know, cost effective, um, we're able to actually diagnose these children, you know, much more quickly. In fact, um, you know, just recently, the world record for the fastest molecular diagnosis was achieved um, uh, by uh, Dr. Ewan Ashley, who was a lab at, at Stanford. He and his team, um, I think, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think it was eight hours from blood draw to whole genome sequence to diagnosis, which, you know, a, a neonatal intensive care unit is $15,000 a night to stay. So, you know, really meaningful uh, for patients and their families. And, you know, the evidence is just beginning to come out about how much of a difference does that long read sequencing capability have in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. The data to really look at, I'm okay, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so short read versus long read. So it seems like this, the advent of long read, you know, um, data sequencing has led to the ability, right, for us to see the whole genome parts that we were unable to access. So what is the difference what, between short read and long read and what enabled, right, the advent of long read? So imagine 15 years ago when there was no necessarily like, like um, converging idea around how to sequence DNA. Like we talked about this, you know, flow cell sort of flow the DNA in, you know, lock it down and read it optically. Like 15 years ago, we didn't necessarily know that that was going to be the technology that took us to, you know, the sub thousand dollar genome. So it was a little bit more ambiguous back then. And so what was happening is different research groups were trying to figure out what is the best system for sequencing DNA, right? And so just imagine that like choices made 15 years ago on how to actually build these sensors diverged. So these are actually under the hood, extremely different sensors. So let me quickly kind of get into the way that PacBio does it. And then I can talk about Nanopore because they're both you know amazing but unique technologies. So with PacBio, you have similar steps on the front end where you're breaking DNA up, but you know again, instead of 200 letters, you're doing 25,000 or something like that. So bigger fragments, bigger uh, jigsaw puzzle pieces. And instead of a glass uh, flow cell where you're putting you know, linear molecules and anchoring them, what PacBio uses is a semiconductor-based platform. So in their semiconductors, you have a, a surface that is, I, I believe, currently made of aluminum, and you have these tiny little holes that are drilled into them in a, in a uniform array, you know, millions of these things. And each one, th these holes are so tiny, like, let me put this into, into a sense of scale for people. The ratio of a one liter bottle of water to the size of one of these little holes, which I'm, they're called waveguides, is the same ratio as that one liter of bottle of water to all of the water on the planet, right? So we're talking about 10 to the negative 20 nanometers, right? Or meters, something like that. So extremely small. So um, PacBio's DNA is not a straight line, it's a circle. They take a 25,000 long circle and then they flow it 
and it anchors itself inside of that little hole. And then it spins in real time, still using the same optical, you know, laser fluorescent readout that you'd get like with the short read platform. The difference is that by anchoring the DNA inside of that tiny little hole, you're actually able to read DNA as fast as almost as fast as it's synthesized, you know, in, in a much larger kind of biological system. So instead of, you know, one base for every, you know, five minutes or so, it's, it's you know, multiple bases per second. So it's very fast. Right. Um, and you're able to read much, much longer molecules than you can, you know, in a flow cell system. And one of the reasons for that is in a flow cell, it's very likely when you get past about 300 letters long that the strands get out of what's called out of phase, where some of them are flashing green and some of them are flashing blue with the same pixel. So the pixel is, is getting like, you know, wavelength overlap and can't, it gets confused, right? It's like, is this blue? Is this green? I don't know. And then you start getting error. So you can't do that in a flow cell regime. After about 300 bases, you start getting into some trouble. But with you know a semiconductor, you can do tens of thousands of bases, and and with you know with, with accuracy that's superior to the flow cell, and with you know much much more um, uh, much much longer reads. So that's PacBio. Nanopore is is really interesting and fun to talk about too. So the way Nanopore does it, they threw the camera and the glowing bases out completely. What they decided to do was literally create a microscopic channel that DNA molecules will zip through like this. And the way that you get them to do that is you expose them to current, right? So you have positive and negative charge. And because DNA is negatively charged and has its own you know, energetics, you can rifle it through the pore, right? And this is oversimplifying it a bit, but essentially the way that it, it's reading the system is by a voltage drop, right? Or a current drop rather. And so you're measuring these, you know, depending on if it's an A or a T or a G or a C, you get a different characteristic voltage or, or current change. And that helps your computer understand, okay, well, is it, you know, what letter is it? So on the back end, you know, Nanopore uses a lot of deep learning techniques to process what are called squiggle grams. And you can look at them, they actually look like long squiggles. And they leverage a ton of deep learning to be able to figure out, okay, well, what was an A, what was a T, what was a G, what was a C? So you know, the cool thing about this is nanopore devices are handheld, right? Some of them are. So you can take a sequencer that's the size of your smartphone into the middle of the jungle and take a sample out, you know, put it through the system. And if you've got a sufficiently powerful computer, you can even start doing informatics in the field, right? So that's the, the advantage of being able to get rid of the, the camera, the optics, um, you know, and, the, and those, uh, those reagents, right? The glowing fluorophores. So um, those are both long read systems. They can handle, you know, much longer molecules. And for certain applications, that's really advantageous. In fact, necessary. You know, we think sequencing whole genomes, you need long reads, um, and you, you, they need to be, yeah. So for, um, okay, so let's talk about the downsides of PacBio and Nanopore's approach. So with PacBio, um, it sounds like, it sounds great, you know, long read sequencing, but um, right now, um, I was looking at their revenue, and it seems like year over year Q1 revenue is only up uh, from 29 million to 33 million. So it doesn't look like they're growing like by leaps and bounds every year. So it doesn't seem like their machines are completely flying off the shelf. So what's going on here? Why, you know, is, is there some type of downside or cons to their their pack, to PacBio's approach? 
So the short answer is yes, there are pros and cons for every sequencing approach. Um, the thing to understand though about Nanopore, PacBio, and Illumina, Illumina is you know, much older, dominant market share because short read sequencing was the one that took off the most in terms of cost and scalability. So the term for scalability is throughput, how much DNA can you crank out of, mach of a machine per day, right? Um, PacBio and Nanopore have both been definitely not languishing. It's just a lot harder of a problem, frankly, from an engineering standpoint. Um, and they didn't have, you know, the huge influx of R&D capital that Illumina got by virtue of scaling its business quickly. So the technologies have been a little bit, you know, um, kind of living in the shadow on a price point and throughput basis. So, you know, um, PacBio specifically, semiconductors are a little bit more expensive to manufacture than flow cells. Um, you know, they're not as high throughput. There are, you know, literal physical constraints um, that you don't necessarily have on a flow cell system. So obviously there are advantages, you know, like we've been talking about with long molecules, but it's been the scalability and the cost um, that has been historically the challenge. Now, PacBio is at a really interesting standpoint insofar as, you know, within the next 12 to 18 months, we think that their next sensor that comes out will be roughly as cheap or cheaper than short read for many applications. Um, and the throughput concern we, we think is, is kind of going away, right? So they're a generation behind on a platform standpoint. Now from a business standpoint though, it was really interesting, right? Because Illumina was actually trying to buy PacBio in 2018, right? So they put a bid out $1.2 billion. The FTC said, said no, you know, on the grounds that it was too much of concentration of the market. And so that, that deal ended up passing. Um, since that time, PacBio has, has you know, raised more than a billion dollars in capital. Um, they've made a few really important technological breakthroughs that are going to be coming to market, you know, we believe, within the next 12 months on the long read side of the house um, that we think, again, are going to take care of those throughput and cost concerns and, and really allow the technology to scale in ways that it hasn't beforehand. The other thing to consider is leadership. You know, this company, after that deal breakup, was kind of thinking, okay, well, where do we go from here? We need excellent leadership to be able to take this technology, which has always been great, but, you know, it, it's not a scenario where if you build it, they will come, right? You need a really excellent management. And so I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I believe they've taken something like 20 or 30 executives and, and managers from other sequencing companies, including Illumina. Um, the current CEO and COO of PacBio, both were chief commercial and CFO of Illumina. Um, so they've been taking a lot of talent, you know, people who are seasoned veterans in the space and who have frankly been competing with PacBio from the other team um, who are really supercharging this. And, and we think that they're, you know, right at the cusp of, of really breaking into important clinical markets. And that's what happens with these businesses. You know, they have academic and research interest, but eventually you've got to scale to clinical because that's where the money is. Um, you know, to that end, PacBio signed a deal with one of the largest uh, sequencing labs in the world, Invitae, to begin scaling up the technology in a clinical, uh, you know, whole genome sequencing context. So, you know, the deal making side, the you know, getting the management, it's really a situation where the stars are, are, are aligning. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention is it's very difficult to model, especially for capital intensive kind of hardware tools businesses through the pandemic, 
right? And one of the reasons for that is, as you can imagine, COVID disruptions with like, things like NIH budgeting, which you know slows down purchasing, uh, lab closures, meaning scientists are not at the bench doing their work. So it, it is a little tricky to model through the pandemic. That being said, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they've just put up six record-breaking quarters in a row on instrument placements. And, and uh, you know, just this last quarter, they signed a, a bulk order with the Broad Institute, you know, the joint institute between Harvard um, and MIT um, to um, essentially start doing population scale sequencing using their long read platform. Um, so, yeah, and, and Nanopore, you know, is in a similar situation, I would say, in terms of, you know, they're not at the scale of Illumina. Um, they've got their own markets that they're going after, and they are doing that, absolutely. Um, and there are unique places where Nanopore can outcompete anyone, right, by virtue of being decentralized and not having that huge CapEx expense up front. Um, so the way I would describe it, lay of the land, is Lumina's not going to go anywhere. It's very unlikely this technology and this company gets you know, usurped by a competitor, if not solely for the reason that they're entrenched in a lot of workflows, they have extraordinary service and support infrastructures, right? So when these machines break, you've got to know that you're going to have someone like an engineer to come fix it for you. Um, and that's not necessarily a promise that some of these new sequencing startups, um, you know, can, can claim, right? And by the way, it's not just PacBio and, and Nanopore. I was just at uh, a conference two weeks ago, and I, I think four more sequencing companies have burst out onto the landscape. Uh, so it's it's really exciting. We've not had a period this competitive in sequencing ever. Um, and so what I think that means ultimately is cost will come down, applications will be enabled, um, you know, all the good things that come from not having a monopoly anymore. Um, yeah. Because ultimately, sequencing improves diagnostics, therapeutics, drug discovery. There's a lot of different kind of industries that can benefit from, yeah. you know, having a lower input cost. Yeah, I want to talk about that more. Um, but first, um, so you tweeted, I think it was today, like about um, uh, some some uh, emoji eyes about um, Ultima, was it uh, genomics or what? Is that a, 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 sequencing, start, a sequencing startup? Yeah, okay. exactly. So Ultima, Ultima was one of these that was working in stealth for about half a decade. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they did a very nice unveiling, I think about three weeks ago, with the headline that they were going to deliver the $100 quote-unquote genome with their first instrument, which is something that, you know, it's a milestone Illumina has been chasing for, you know, a decade plus, right? Um, you know, we could get into it, but I'm, I'm sure there's a whole argument to be made around whether or not they could do it now by lowering prices or if there's actually a technological obstacle to be overcome. Um, regardless, because it really doesn't matter, prices are going to start coming down now, right? If not solely for the reason that a diagnostics lab can go to Illumina and say, hey, you know, I'm going to switch vendors unless you lower my prices, right? Because now I have potentially a viable alternative. And that's pretty much exactly that there was a deal about a few couple days ago that Ultima signed with Exact Sciences, which is, you know, again, one of the largest labs in the world. Um, to do just this, right? So Ultima really burst on the scene in the last couple of weeks, and it's been really exciting to learn for the first time about their technology, which is also a short read technology. Um, the, the thing to understand, though, about 
you know, the, the, the sort of the sequencing world is it's kind of like a lineup with vehicles in the sense that you've got different weight classes. You know, you have smaller benchtop machines that you'll use for certain things. And then you have huge industrial scale, high throughput machines. And so Ultima is uniquely going up against Illumina in that latter category, the super high throughput, you know, large scale setting where the cost per genome is the lowest, right? So they're going after the cash cow. Um, now, there are a lot of questions about Ultima still, right? So proving that your instrument works just as well in the field as it does in your own you know, corporate presentation deck, that's still an unknown. Understanding if there are quirks in the chemistry, which already, you know, there are differences that, you know, from a bioinformatics standpoint, we remember, we go back to what I was saying about before it becomes information, it's a physical thing. And variability in how you manipulate DNA and, and amplify it and, and sequester it onto a flow cell, all of those things can create error that has to be accounted for downstream. And so there are going to be question marks with Ultima for probably the next several quarters as the technology makes its way into the world. Um, but again, we think unequivocally it's a really good thing, you know, rooting for the team, obviously, and, and hopeful that they're able to shake things up. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the genius part of what they've done from an engineering perspective is instead, uh, and there are several things that can contribute to how they were able to dro drop the price. But I think, I think the most interesting one, again, from a pure engineering standpoint is instead of you know, using a bunch of expensive microfluidic channels to gently flow DNA over the top of a rectangular flow cell, they use a disc, like a 200 millimeter wafer that you'd find in a semiconductor foundry, right? So this, this disc is the substrate, it's analogous to the flow cell. And one of the ways that they're able to save cost is instead of trickling in, you know, your liquid, what are called reagents that you, you know, you're putting into the flow cell and pumping them across the surface of this thing, which ultimately creates you know, some waste, um, they spin it and use a technique called spin coating, where they just drip a little bit on the top and then spin the disc and the centrifugal, which I know is not a real force, but that force kind of flows a very even monolayer of material along the surface. And you end up saving money that way because you're not wasting as much, right? So all that, all that it is is like packaging up operating leverage in a box, right? Use as few flow cells with as few reagents and get the most DNA, and that's how you get leverage in a box, right? Got and it. so that's sort of what they've done. Interesting. Um, so Ultimate, that's a private company, right? And yep. then what can you tell me about Singular Genomic Systems? Um, I think their ticker is OMIC. I think they have yep. some... Like a, a machine called the G4 next year, the PX, they're supposed to be doing next generation sequencing. Are they in competition with any of these companies we're talking about? All of these are in competition with each other, right? Okay. So Illumina, Ultima, PacBio, they're all in some way, shape or form going after the sequencing market. Now, the thing is, right, it's a huge and growing landscape with a diverse set of you know, applications. And so we don't believe that the market is ever going to converge on a single sensor or a single company in the way that it has historically, right? So going back to what I was saying, you know, we don't think that Illumina is going anywhere, but we think that their market share has peaked, right? Um, and part of that is just, you know, go at it from a technology perspective. You know, you've, you've mastered 
you know, one hammer and then all of a sudden everything looks like a nail, right? And that can work, especially when the alternatives are 10 times as expensive, but we're not in that regime anymore, right? The costs have all come down across the board and we've learned that a lot of companies have unique angles of attack on the market, right? And so that's kind of how I think about singular genomics insofar as they're going after, at least initially, a very specific market segment, which is called a core lab. So a core lab is a sequencing center. Oftentimes you'll find them at large academic institutions and their job is to serve the research needs of all of their constituents, whether they're students or professors or you know, maybe research groups in the local area. They just receive all of those samples and then they process them like as a service, right? That's what core labs do. Now, one of the big problems that core labs face is the fact that in order to get you know, the best economics of a sequencing run, I have to load it up fully. And the analogy that I like to use there is like, you know, say I'm baking, you know, muffins and I've got a tray that can hold 30, you know, I've got a tin that can hold 30 muffins. It costs me the same electricity cost and the same time to bake one muffin or 30, right? I'm just hitting the machine. But if I run the machine with only 10 muffins in it and I've got 20 of free space, then I'm not operating at the best efficiency, the best energy per muffin. <laughs> so I know it's silly, but it's exactly the same with a core lab is if I'm getting samples in and I've only got enough to load up half of a sequencer, my options are either to you know, not make my customers wait and do it right now, but then I lose margin, right? Because I'm not running efficiently. And so that's the, that is the angle of attack, at least to me, that Singular is going after. And the way that they're doing it, one is by optimizing the system to be fast, so you go through all that, you know, short read, 300 cycle, whatever, um, within one business day versus, you know, what might be a day and a half or two days for a comparable system. So that by itself isn't necessarily the, you know, the game changer, as it were. The other component is instead of having a single flow cell that, you know, I have to load in, the G4 has four. And each of those four different flow cells has a what's called a lane, which is like a groove that, you know, is sequestered from the other four. So what that means is, you know, four by four, that's 16. It's a lot easier for me to kind of run this machine dynamically. So instead of having to wait until I can fill up all of them, maybe I, you know, I might only need to fill up one or two and I can load the machine and get the same economics. So that's kind of the idea is flexibility and speed um, and then by virtue of that, you know, I, I, I create a value proposition for core labs. Um, so that's the initial beachhead market as I understand it. I don't want to, you know, pigeonhole them into something that they're not going after, but that was my impression, mm -hmm. um, yeah. is, is really optimizing for operational efficiency. Got it. So, I mean, so, so far we've talked about kind of, uh, sequencing as a major unit development. We've talked about the the dynamics, the how the how sequencing works, short read, long read, some different companies involved. So, to kind of take us back, we got Illumina. They're the the big boy, the long-standing you know company out there. Then you've got PacBio, um, Oxford Nanopore. You've got um, some smaller companies like Ultima, some other mm -hmm. companies like Singular. Um, and would you characterize this whole market as kind of like the tools, um, basically? Okay, so all exactly. of these are providing yep. the machines that are allowing, whether it's labs or companies or others, to sequence, right? Um, 
the genome. So um, one question about Illumina. In my personal kind of just shallow research, I've just done, you know, a few glimpses at their annual reports over the years and quarterly reports. But it seems like, you know, the culture, and this is my personal just, you know, just uh, opinion. The culture is a bit more sales, sales focused. It's like a very developed, mature organization, right? Um, focused on revenue. They've got their core products. Um, I personally just wasn't that uh, impressed by kind of, um, I don't know, the, the pace of innovation or, or I felt like perhaps a lack of a startup uh, culture in that company. But would you say, um, what's going on in terms of patents? It does um, Illumina being such a big player, do they inhibit innovation in that field at all by holding patents, by threatening lawsuits or anything like that? Like what's, what's been your observation kind of in that area? Yeah. Um, so that, and there was a lot to unpack there. So please cut me off if I missed something, but to your point, um, absolutely. You know, for the past 15 years or so, they've used, um, you know, their, patent estate and, um, you know, litigation to essentially block competition. In fact, there are still lawsuits ongoing. Um, one of the biggest ones, which was recently overturned, was with a company called BGI, the Beijing Genomics Institute, which is kind of the, the China homegrown Illumina in many ways. Um, and so for a long time, they've been trying to sell their instruments in the United States and time after time, Illumina has been able to successfully thwart uh, their ability to sell into the U.S. Now, several key patents have since expired that are enabling BGI to begin to sell in the U.S. later this summer. So the extent to which Illumina is able to continue to litigate and block competition is, I think, vanishing rapidly, if not already entirely deteriorated. Now, that doesn't mean they won't do it because they have a lot of money and the resources to stall competition, especially, you know, nascent competition that doesn't have the balance sheet to, you know, be able to weather that that storm. So far, though, you know, you have to understand a lot of the people that are at these other sequencing companies, a lot of them come from Illumina and many of them understand the patent landscape well. And so, you know, to our knowledge, many of them have innovated enough to circumvent any possibility of litigation. Doesn't, you know, again, doesn't mean it won't happen, but I, I think the, the patent thing is pretty much over. Mm. Now, Nanopore and PacBio don't really need to worry about this because their sensors, again, are so different that there's not, you know, really much to do there anyway. So that's absolutely been the case. And on innovation, I mean, look, you know, we, we had Illumina as a core position for many years, certainly before I got to ARC in 2018. Um, this is all public information. We exited the position, uh, I believe, following the announcement that they were going to acquire a company called Grail that they had actually spun off some years earlier. And without getting too much into Grail, I wanted to just generally make the statement that um, that acquisition for us was the absolute confirmation that Illumina was willing to continue competing with its own customers. And what I mean by that is, you know, Grail is a diagnostic for a cancer screening business, right? And many of Illumina's own largest companies do that as well. So you can see, you know, this issue where I may not want to subsidize my own competition, right? All right. So, so that's kind of the dynamic that we were um, concerned about, especially because we knew that viable alternatives were brewing. Um, and again, you know, last week, um, well, 
Ultima and Exact announced last week, but Invite, like I already mentioned, has actually been actively investing in getting their system switched over, at least for some applications, uh, to PacBio. So we viewed that as a, as a risk, right? And we put Illumina through the same kind of rigorous, um, you know, evaluation of people management, culture, technology, leadership, uh, the five-year valuation. And at the time, you know, we were just looking at it from the perspective of, you know, key account risk, uh, competing with customers, um, the price tag that they actually paid for Grail compared to what we felt like it was worth. Um, it was a, you know, a combination, um, of factors that, that led to that. Yeah. Got it. Sounds good. Um, curious, actually a sidestep kind of in our conversation. So, um, I know you do, um, a lot of the genomics research, um, who do you, are you involved with valuation research as well? Like determining your expected valuation of this company in five years, um, as well, or is that another part of the team that does that? No, so so the analysts, uh, you know, myself included, we, we do all of it, right? So the valuation framework is is sixfold, right? So we evaluate parameters like people management, culture, track record of execution, uh, product leadership, any technological moats or barriers to entry. Um, again, track records, and then finally that that five year valuation. So for all the companies I cover, yes, I do have a five year you know model for each of them that we update. Um, so yeah, that's all under, under the analyst's uh, wheelhouse. I mean, in terms of, it's another sidetrack, we have, we have, uh, we've had a crazy market, you know, over the past uh, year and a half or so, let's say since the beginning of January 21, um, when you value companies and you have these models, um, a lot, a lot of these genomic companies were a lot higher, let's say in the beginning of 2021, and we've seen them drop significantly, maybe 70 or 80% or so for a lot of them, um, have you seen like the multiples um, that investors are willing to give come down? And has that have, has that given you more conviction, more kind of confidence in your five-year projections that you think you, you, they'll be hit in some ways just if the market rebounds to some, you know, more, I guess, higher kind of uh, multiples that investors are willing to give? Yes. So let's start with the, the mechanics of the kind of the multiple re-rating. You know, we don't necessarily pay for sell-side models, but obviously we do see the price target adjustments that happen. And we've continued to be really shocked at how drastically uh, those price targets have, have changed, you know, in response to these, you know, interest rate hikes and things like that, you know, various macroeconomic forces, which, you know, to your point, have been pretty indiscriminate. Um, which leads me to my second point. You know, a lot of people treat biotech like one big monolithic thing. You know, they think unprofitable, they think high risk, they think binary outcome, which, which couldn't be further from the truth for a lot of these companies. I mean, let's just build off the conversation that we've been having, right? We've already talked about two companies that have razor, razor blade business models with very visible revenue, with increasing margins that become profitable when they get to a certain scale, generally into the clinic, right? So that's a huge chunk. Then you have diagnostics companies that are not dissimilar, right? Visible revenue, very large markets, the way that their you know, businesses kind of work are the multiplication between units and price, you know, so nothing esoteric or quirky there. Um, and so you'll have kind of countervailing forces of volume growth versus reimbursement from public and private payers, but generally you know, all that information is in the public domain. Then you have therapeutic companies, which are a little more, um, you know, risky, depending on how big they are, what type of, of therapy that they're seeking to bring to market. And I don't want to get too exhaustive, but the point I'm trying to make is 
the fact that all of these different in markets have been so correlated is in and of itself quite, quite peculiar. Um, especially when you think it's not just biotech, it's, you know, I, I don't know the numbers, but I think I saw something that, you know, our, our fintech and our genomics portfolios have been 92% correlated over the last year, despite having no overlap in a single name or in market, an interesting tidbit. Um, the reason why we've been so shocked, I think at some of the the re-ratings and price target adjustments, you know, they shouldn't swing that much. Like if, if you were modeling a company and your price target moves by 75%, I don't think you were ever really modeling the company. I think you were just modeling rates. Um, so w- with us, you know, in our five-year picture, absolutely, we assume a ton of margin compression. We, we don't like double gas our valuations by assuming not only is the company going to scale exponentially, but the, you know, the valuation multiple that people are going to be willing to pay is also high, right? We, we assume it's going to compress by virtue of more competition coming into the into the marketplace and also just the nature of these growth curves. You can't put up triple digit growth in perpetuity. At some point, you know, you have a tapering off, absolutely. It's just, you know, where is that absolute level, right? Is it down kind of near nominal GDP or is it somewhere in the 30, 40% range and, and durable with, you know, improving margins? And that's typically what we're seeing with our life science companies is something, you know, that falls further into that latter category. The last thing I want to say is if you think about how crazy this environment has been with things like, you know, just seemingly overnight changes in the way that we do things or, uh, you know, rapid sweeping changes in consumer preference, for example. Right. Healthcare doesn't care about any of that. Right. So, um, you know, and I'm, I'm about to publish, publish something soon. And I, I tweeted about it actually recently that, like, if you take a step back and think about just oncology, right? So we missed a ton of cancer screenings, unfortunately, as you can imagine, um, during the pandemic. Those cancers don't go away, right? The demand didn't get pulled forward or, or evaporate and you missed your window. It's like a very kind of morbid but true statement of fact that the demand, as it were, in this space is is entirely durable and not correlated to anything, right? It's the breakdown of our cells. So it's hard to bet against that, right? Yeah. I mean, you could talk about changes in government funding or, you know, maybe there was a massive change in regulation that's going to make it harder for these companies to scale. We've actually seen the opposite, you know, and, and one of the, you know, you asked me at the beginning of this, like, what are the three biggest things to be excited about? We, we talked about sequencing, which I love, but if we're going to talk about the application space and diagnostics in particular, I think the biggest single innovation that's going to cut across so many different disease areas is this idea of liquid biopsy, which is essentially taking a blood sample and doing sequencing on that. And I'm going to, we can get back into it, but the point I'm just trying to make is like the amount of, of clinical evidence that has come out, the changes in reimbursement, they've largely, if not entirely have been positive over the past two years. Hell, in fact, there have been little cottage industries that have been created. Um, like for instance, um, You'll see a big increase in what's called mobile phlebotomy, right? So at-home blood drawing, kind of last-mile services that have creeped up, which is really important infrastructure when you consider, you know, liquid biopsies can be done at home, right? So before the pandemic, we weren't we weren't even really doing that. Many doctors were kind of like slow adopters of this technology, and then all of a sudden, it was like, wait a second, we physically cannot get patients into hospitals. They're too sick or immunocompromised to do surgery. So what are we going to do? Are we going to stop doing oncology for, you know, years? 
No, we're going to test out this liquid biopsy thing that we've been hearing about. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, wait a second. This is awesome. Yeah. Why have I not been doing this the whole time? So it's, it's that kind of thing where it's like, yeah, you know, are we in worse shape now than we were yeah. a couple of years ago? I, I don't think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to talk about this liquid biopsy um, and diagnostics <laughs> angle here. So let's say sequencing is a big thing. And we've talked about the tools and these companies, you know, making next generation sequencers, et cetera. But this second type of level, which is moving now into diagnostics, um, it seems like, you know, I, I'd love to, to get kind of your, you know, simplified explanation of how this is working, because it seems like this is a huge area where if you could do, and when we say liquid biopsy, it's just a blood test, right? Like a basically mm -hmm. taking some blood, right? Um, Usually, is it is it just like a prick or is it a little bit more usually? Um, yeah, you, you need a, I mean, this is actually, I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. You, you need a whole vial. Turns right, out okay. that the whole like drop of blood thing turned to not okay. be real. <laughs> okay, got it. So you need a vial. Um, so um, when I he heard about um, liquid biopsies with um, uh, detecting cancer, right? That mm -hmm. seems like a, a potentially a killer use case. Um, just because how prevalent cancer is. And if you can actually detect cancer in its earliest or stages, it could completely transform, you know, treatment, everything. Um, this seems like a huge, huge, like, you don't have to explain it to anybody, you know? It's like, hey, do a blood test for cancer. In, you know, if you can catch it early, it makes sense. So can you explain, like, um, how is this done? How is how how are we able to detect cancer earlier? What types of cancer are we able to detect? What, at what confidence rates? Mm. You know, and what are the key technologies that are enabling um, all of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's let's stay within the bounds of cancer care and oncology. Just understand, though, we can use liquid biopsy technology for other disease areas as well. But I think oncology is, to your point, kind of the killer app and very exciting to talk about. So I think the first thing to understand about these tests, they're exactly the way that you described. You know, for you as a person, you may not even know it's happening. You're just going into a lab core request or another clinic and getting a, a vial or two of blood taken. All the new interesting stuff is happening, you know, once that blood leaves and, and get, goes to a lab, right? So we're still using sequencing on it, and I'll explain how that works. But the important thing to understand is that you know, these liquid biopsy tests are not just relevant in the screening setting, right? Uh, which is, you know, testing people who do not have cancer ostensibly, and they're not symptomatic, and you're looking to find the disease when it's in its earliest, most treatable stages, right? So that's the front end of this so-called diagnostic funnel, right? Now, there are use cases for liquid biopsy along the entire cancer care continuum. What I mean by that is, and I think a great way to do this and explain it is from the point of view of a single patient, right? So let's say that you're, you know, you're a screen positive, you're, you're going in for the next step in the cycle. You can do another test right before surgery, and technically that's called neo, it's called the neoadjuvant setting. What that means is we're trying to understand how aggressive is your disease, right? Do we want to dial up and make our treatment very aggressive, or do we want to kind of take our hand off and, and be a little bit more relaxed? Some other people might have heard this called prognostics, right? What's my prognosis? That's, that's another you know, component. Then what you can do is treatment response monitoring, meaning after you start getting either surgery or chemotherapy or some precision medicine, 
understanding if the cancer is being killed, if it's evolving, if it's responding to the treatment and becoming, you know, almost immune or protected against the treatment. Do I need to change my treatment or my dosing? These are all questions you can also answer, again, with a liquid biopsy. It's just a different setting along that timeline. You can also use it to you know, surface the actual mutations in your cancer that are driving its aggression. And I can use that information to match you to a, a, you know, a, a exponentially growing set of therapies that target specific mutations. And the last use case is, is you know, long-term surveillance and monitoring, right? So after treatment is done and hopefully you're in remission, instead of going and getting a scan, um, being able to do it, you know, with blood, right? And you could say, well, Simon, what's the advantage of that versus a scan like an MRI or a CT or something like that? The advantage is in many of the studies that are coming out, you know, large peer reviewed, you know, several thousand person cohorts across different types of cancer. What we're finding is that these molecular tests can see the reemergence of cancer months or even years before you could pick it up on a CT scan. And not only is it better, but because the costs have come down so much, it's actually starting to become cheaper than doing it with imaging. So people ask me all the time, like, what is this taking share from? It's taking share from either not doing anything or using, you know, nuclear medicine and blasting people with, with radiation to, to see these kind of subjective qualitative images. So that is the, the scope of what liquid biopsy can address within oncology is all these different questions, screening, prognosis, diagnosis, treatment response, surveillance, all of it can be answered by taking a blood draw, and, and this is where it gets interesting, the back end, right, like what the sample prep is, what type of sequencing do I do, what signals, what regions of the genome am I looking at, that's the stuff that changes and has to be optimized to answer all those different questions. But fundamentally, so, um, it, yeah, quick, go ahead. A couple of quick questions here. So how, how much has co have costs come down uh, for these uh, liquid biopsy, let's say cancer tests? Yeah, we, we've actually put out um, some data on specifically uh, what's called a multi-cancer screening test, which means it's a, it's a liquid biopsy done in a screening setting, but instead of looking for a single cancer, it looks for dozens of cancers simultaneously and you know, looks for the signal of that in your bloodstream. Um, we estimated that as you know, recently as 2015 or 2016, Per person, that test would have cost about thirty-five thousand dollars, and now it costs less than five hundred. And on its way down, we think to essentially, you know, the data itself will be worth more than the price of the test, right? So that's kind of the, the situation. Yeah, I mean, once it comes down to like five hundred bucks, that becomes you know accessible to a whole host of people. Is this just? I'm curious, like how recent has it come down that much like if we were to track let's say three years ago would it have been still a couple thousand dollars or was it just in the past couple of years it dropped let's say you know to, to that price point yeah i i would say it's a little tough to say because it's not like we're looking at list prices that are posted somewhere online uh, what the way we actually did this is look at how the design of the test changed how much sequencing they had to do how much of the genome 
what were the different signals they were looking at. And so th this is more of our own interpolation. But the general shape of the curve, I would say, is, is oh, actually quite exponential in terms of how uh, quickly it moved um, down the list. And um, only part of that was because of the underlying cost decline of sequencing, which admittedly, you know, Illumina has not changed that price in about seven years. So that wasn't as much of what it was. What it really was, Dave, is what signals of cancer were we looking at? Because the thing about cancer is, right, like as it's growing in the body and it, and it divides from like a single set of cells that have some malignant programming in them, as they grow, they whisper and they cast off a signal into your blood. And there are different types of signals. Some of those come in the form of proteins. Some of those come in the form of DNA mutations. Some of them come in the form of, of you know, altered RNA, right? So there are different molecules that are being shed into the bloodstream. Each one carries a different kind of chunk of information about that cancer. And the hard part is, is you know, taking all that different signal and all the background noise that exists in your blood. Because as you can imagine, there's a ton of <laughs> junk swimming around in your DNA, healthy DNA, or excuse me, in your bloodstream. There's healthy DNA all over the place. I mean, thinking about the fractions, like how little DNA is in your bloodstream from the cancer versus the healthy background in an early stage disease is something like one one thousandth of a percent. It might be from the tumor, right, in the earliest stages versus, you know, later stage. So really the way we think about it is a lot like information processing and signal transduction is, is what signal can you get? What, you know, for one dollar, what's the sensitivity and the specificity or the accuracy that, that I get? And so that's that's you know why all these different companies have kind of come up with different designs to do the same thing, and it's also why competition in the space is so healthy because there is no like unlike with tools where you can have a patent and exclude based on that, it's it's almost impossible to do this in diagnostics. Um, you know there was a 2013 Supreme Court case uh, versus uh, Myriad Genetics that essentially disallowed. Uh, our ability to buy up sections of the genome and say, hey, we're the only ones who can look at this part of the genome for diagnostics. So once that precedent kind of got put out there, you know, people still try, but for the most part, like there are just so many equally efficient routes to the same answer that it's kind of like whack-a-mole. You know, you smack one approach and someone will just come up with a way to sidestep it. So it's, it's a very fluid landscape. And I think yeah. ultimately that's what resulted in the cost decline is, is the competition. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Um, so, I mean, I'm wondering like how accurate these tests are, but before we go into that, um, let's talk about the dynamics. So explaining this to an eight-year-old, um, how these liquid biopsy tests or let's say blood tests work. So is it basically, let's say you have a cancer, let's say it's breast cancer mm -hmm. or something or prostate cancer, does that cancer is shedding some material, right? Um, either there, it's... DNA, mutated DNA or RNA or proteins, mm -hmm. that's different than the rest of your body. So if you're able to pick that up, then you're able to identify, oh, there is a cancer. And then I guess, is it, if you pick up a lot of material, the cancer is farther, you know, progress? Is that how it works? And less, it's, it's less. Um, how, how do the dynamics work with, with detecting cancer? Yeah, so you, you pretty much nailed it, right? So, um, like this concept of a liquid biopsy actually is not is not new. Like for a while, we've known that um, 
cancers, so remember there are two main types of cancer, right? Solid cancers, which is about 90% of diagnoses. Those are, you know, like physical solid tumors. The other 10% are blood cancers like leukemia, for example, which is actually when the blood cells are the thing that are mutated and have cancer. So for a while, I would say, you know, decades, we have known that there are things called circulating tumor cells or CTCs. And these are actual like full cancerous or malignant cells that kind of break off from the bigger clump and float, you know, throughout the bloodstream. Now, there aren't many of them. They are fragile. And for a lot of solid tumors, um, you know, very difficult to catch and, and, and look inside. So for a while, we've really only been doing liquid biopsy on blood cancers, which is great. And it's actually why our, our medicines have gotten so effective in blood cancers. I mean, there's people even treat some of them like chronic diseases, which, you know, I'm not saying that to minimize them, but just to kind of compare and contrast. Um, now, the problem with solid cancer is most of the signal is actually not contained in these neat little, you know, cells, these CTCs. It's called cell-free DNA, meaning the cell cracks open and the DNA gets is naked and just floating out in the, you know, in the bloodstream, unprotected by a cell, you know, that it's that it's encapsulated within. And so the issue with that is the DNA becomes, you know, not only very rare, like a needle in a haystack, but it's also very delicate and hard to work with. And so it's really required, again, the cost decline of sequencing to be able to, to actually make it cost effective to do this. Now, to your point on, you know, what's the kind of dynamic relationship between how big a tumor is and how much signal there is in the blood, it's absolutely an exponential relationship, right? So there are different parameters like you know, how much uh, circulatory uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, how many circulatory structures are surrounding or woven into the tumor, right? Because you can imagine, you know, the more it rains in arteries that it's next to, the likelier that it is to, to push stuff into the bloodstream. Certain tumors shed more than others. So breast cancer that you mentioned is actually really on the low end, meaning it's harder to detect because it just doesn't put off as many mutations or, you know, signal into the bloodstream. Um, now, I don't, again, I don't know the exact off the top of my head percentages, but the way to think about it is because tumors kind of grow in 3D space, like the bigger they get, you kind of get an exponential increase. To, I can bracket it for you, though. An advanced stage cancer, so stage three, stage four, it's about 0.1% uh, of the, the cell-free DNA is, is derived um, from the tumor. And then when you go to an early stage, say stage zero, stage one, it drops down to 0.001. So there's like a two order of magnitude difference in concentration between an early stage and a late stage tumor. And as you can probably guess, the less DNA there is, the harder it is to detect and the more powerful our techniques have to be uh, to be able to confidently call it, right? So some of these tests have exquisite accuracy. I mean, for late stage or, you know, and which, is important, right? So we do liquid biopsy on later stage patients to figure out what medicines to give them. So it's still extremely important. Um, you know, analytical sensitivity and specificity, you know, can be upwards of 99.9% .9 um, for those things. When you start getting into early, early stage cancer, which is, you know, where a lot of active research is, it's still a little bit, you know, the jury's kind of out, right? And we, I mean, we could have hours long discussion just on how different regulatory and payer bodies will look at, you know, stage specific accuracy to determine clinical utility. 
Um, I promise it will be a little bit boring, <laughs> but, but that's essentially the way to think about it is the earlier, the harder it is to detect. And we're still kind of leveraging a lot of machine learning techniques to figure out how to crack that problem. But it's not a, it's not a 10, 20 year question mark. I mean, these tests, some of them are commercial today, yeah. right? So we're really on the cusp of it. Yeah. So um, in terms of timeline or just, yeah, where are we in this bigger kind of picture of, you know, liquid biopsies? Um, is this still something like, let's say five years ago, it was like really, really new. There's only a few, you know, few initiatives, few things going on, or has this been going on longer? I mean, you're talking about, you know, how we had, you know, blood cancers, like we're, we're able to, to analyze those, but this transition to kind of this idea of solid, you know, cancer tumors are shedding, you know, let's say DNA materials that we could track. Like how, was there a specific time? Was there a turning point of like, wow, this is actually happening. And um, I'm just curious where we stand right now in the bigger, you know, history of things. So, and I, I will share this with you, but there's a, there's a chart that you can look at that basically shows as DNA sequencing costs dropped from like, you know, several hundred million, you know, down on, you know, and we get to about $10,000, there's basically no publications in PubMed on liquid biopsy. It's like less than a hundred. At the thousand dollar price point, it turns into an L and it goes straight up. And now there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these things. So it's a technologically enabled thing. So it took the combination of cheap sequencing deep learning and AI to be able to make sense of that ocean of data, because it's a different problem now, right? Data is not scarce anymore. It's abundant, but it's a lot of it's noisy. So different, a little bit different of a regime. Um, you know, five years ago, these things were in terms of solid tumors and, and, you know, thinking about liquid biopsy, the way we've been describing it, that, that was really where these things kind of started out where, you know, four or five years ago, Within the last three years, there's been a, you know waves of FDA approvals and you know new commercial launches and new companies kind of bringing their approaches in and, and, and launching them commercially. I think we now have um, probably about ten public companies that have actually commercial liquid biopsy assets. You know whether it's different cancer types, different care settings, et cetera. Um, it's still vastly underpenetrated. So. The most advanced application of liquid biopsy is in that advanced cancer setting where, you know, the clinical utility is most pronounced. That's still less than 10% penetrated, right? Um, if you look at early screening um, and kind of the later stage disease monitoring, you know, you're talking less than 1% penetrated. Um, you know, on the screening side, the flagship kind of the one that everyone sort of knows is Cologuard right, the stool-based test that you can use to screen for colorectal cancer. That's kind of the main one people know. And, you know, look, that was approved in 2014 by the FDA. Uh, within four years, they had tested 2 million people with it, and they've doubled that, you know, more, I think more than doubled it since then. So growing very quickly, but still, you know, on the back of 150 million or so people a year who potentially could be getting this type of uh, mm -hmm. this type of screening. So yeah. still vastly underpenetrated across the board. Yeah, Cologuard, that's by Exact Sciences, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. They're like, um, are they pretty much the biggest player in this kind of diagnostics field? You think with gym, with um, testing? Yeah, it, it depends how you want to cut it up. You know, if you're saying like testing volume, yeah. 
you know, Runaway, I think the leader there in terms of number of samples that they process uh, per year. Um, you know, their two biggest areas are, are, are uh, you know, ColorGuard obviously is the flagship assay. This is for mm-hmm. colorectal cancer screening. And they've also got another franchise called Oncotype, which is used, I believe, in more than 70% of U.S. cases of early stage breast cancer, specific subtype uh, of breast cancer to kind of guide treatment decisions around, okay, who do we not need to give chemo and radiation to uh, and who should we? Um, but, you know, again, the field is very dynamic, right? There are yeah. lots of players, Gardent, Natera, Invitae, Neogenomics, like there are lots of different companies kind of going after this. Um, again, they all have their unique strategic advantages, pros and cons. We don't think that it's going to converge on one company, right? And there are a lot of reasons for that. The biggest one is probably that cancer is extremely heterogeneous both, you know, between people and also where we treat it, you know, community setting versus academic. I mean, there, it's just, it's fragmented in so many different ways. It's, it's hard for us to imagine a scenario where it consolidates, um, you know, in the next decade on, on one. But I, I do think you'll, you'll have continued industry consolidation, especially in this environment um, with higher cost of capital and kind of a greater emphasis to, to eliminate redundancy and maybe get SDNA leverage. Um, but yeah, that, that's essentially how we see it playing out. But yeah, exact is definitely up there in the Vanguard. Got it. So um, going back to how this actually works. So um, I'm curious, like if let's say you have a, a cancer and it's shedding some material into your bloodstream and it's going to shed more as it, it progresses, but um, how, how does, were these tests developed? Were they able to, for example, take the cells in the cancer tumor itself, right? Analyze the DNA, maybe focus on certain mutations, and then go into the bloodstream and try to parse, you know, these are the normal cells, these are the shedded material, takes the shedded materials, try to see if there's some linkage, like, you know, similar DNA strands, et cetera, to basically say, okay, there's, you know, some correlation. And I mean, are they using a lot of machine learning? This seems like pretty complex stuff to, to, to see Tons. this stuff, right? Okay. It's all, all yeah. these companies are machine learning. Like you can't, it, without right. without deep learning, you can't do any of this really yeah. um, at this scale. So you're exactly right. So let me explain. Um, I'll use a simplified example where a test is just looking at circulating tumor DNA. It's not looking at other signals like proteins. Let's, let's just focus on, on the DNA part. So you're exactly right. The first thing that has to happen is we have to understand the unique biology of the tumor. Now, what a lot of people may not appreciate is the fact that um, all that a tumor is, is a cell or small groups of cells in your body that have, you know, mutated, you know, part of their genome, you know, there was either an issue or maybe it was exposure to some environmental, you know, UV radiation or something like that. Point being is a mutation happened. Now, for people who are familiar with evolution, you know, it's true on the macro scale, the species, but it's also true inside your body. And so if there is a mutation that gives this group of cells a, an advantage, whether it's evading your immune system or stealing oxygen and nutrients from surrounding cells, this is what allows that subpopulation to grow from a nuisance to an early stage tumor, right? And so then what happens is, which we've been talking about, is as it's growing, it's leaching more signal into the bloodstream. And so the original things that that had to happen for us to be able to do this were understanding mutations that are unique to cancer on a massive scale across different types of cancer, different stages of cancer, 
And there are databases. The biggest one uh, for um, you know acquired mutations, so mutations um, that you're not born with. Um, that type of mutation is called a somatic mutation. It is not passed on to your family or your, your children. Um, so it's a little bit different. Now, there's a database called Cosmic, which catalogs a lot of uh, cancer-specific somatic mutations. So we've learned that there are some genes that are often implicated in cancer. We call those oncogenes, oncology oncogenes. And they're very, very frequently mutated in you know, malignant cells. And so when you have that catalog of mutations, then you can say, all right, we know what mutations we're looking for. Let's start you know, moving away from just sequencing tumor tissue and start looking to see if we can find these mutations swimming around in the bloodstream amidst a sea of healthy DNA. So what, what you have to do then is, I mean, you can brute force it and get tens of thousands of samples and use machine learning to understand patterns and recognize them. Um, but you know, it's always a mixture of using, you know, machine learning and also having like an algorithm that you design, right? So there's a little bit of both, but point being, as you can imagine, right, if I'm getting a bunch of DNA sequence reads and a majority of them are normal and there's no mutation there, but then I find a bunch of them. In fact, I find too many, too many to be random <laughs> that all come from an oncogene that has a specific mutation that I know is pathogenic. It helps my my classifier on the back end say, hey, you know, look, look out here. We, we, we think that there might be somewhere in the body a mutation and the, you know, from a tumor. And the granularity of these things can be, you know, quite good. Many, many tests are actually capable uh, of localizing the cancer to a specific organ. Um, and there's more complexity, as I'm sure you can imagine, around that. But point being is that's essentially how it works. It's looking for the needle in a haystack of mutated versus healthy DNA. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because um, if disease or let's say cancer didn't leave a trail, then it would be a different story. But there's this interesting phenomenon happening here where uh, cancer is actually leaving a trail in the bloodstream, right? And now mm -hmm. we're getting the, the tools, the testing, the diagnosis, the, the abilities to be able to pick up the, ble the breadcrumbs, right, left by this cancer. And mm -hmm. um, it would seem like, where is this headed, like 20, 30, 50 years down the road? It's, I mean, it would just seem like the more testing, like, you do, like, if you could have a 24-7 something, you know, device on you all the time, checking, right? And you had, like, plethora of data, you have the best, if machine learning just exponentially grows like, over the next 30, 40, 50 years, it just seems like you'll be able to detect a lot of stuff, a lot of information. Um, like, I mean, and it just seems like this stuff, I don't know what can stop it. I mean, because people are so, I would say, like hungry for, especially diseases like cancer, right? Wanting to prevent that. Mm -hmm. um, it just seems like a huge ripe open field for many decades to come. I mean, what's your kind of angle or take on, on where this is all headed? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think you're exactly right. I think what happens is you continue to see aggressive cost declines. Um, there are certainly companies that are at the, the bleeding edge of that, actively seeking to lower prices as much as possible to you know, create volume. And with that volume, and you can use the Tesla analogy, you open up the opportunity to do a lot of machine learning and finding rare events, finding edge cases. 
that you can use to make better decisions for every subsequent patient. So you're absolutely right. There's going to be you know, continued improvements on the AI side that makes training and inference cheaper. You're going to have um, you know, signals in blood that we still can't actually detect all of a sudden open up. And the way I like to describe it is, is most of the best tests out there for liquid biopsy leverage multiple different signals. So they might look at DNA, they may look at proteins, they may look at blood. That's called multi-omic, multiple categories of omics. <laughs> and you do that because they actually provide orthogonal information, right? And so it's like a louder than some of its parts. So I think we'll be doing a lot with like signal discovery and we, you know, there's a lot of like a renaissance in, in biomarker discovery. So that's going to continue to happen. Um, you know, with time, you'll see payers and guideline organizations continue to recommend these sorts of things as evidence accrues. And that's already well underway. Um, but eventually, I think you'll be at a point where there will absolutely be companies that not only can provide you with you know, this seamless transition through a cancer care pathway from screening to, to monitoring, but also leverage that in the context of all of the other clinical information that you have been shedding into the healthcare system since you were born, right? So matching that information with, uh, you know, clinical data, everything from unstructured handwritten notes to pathology images, all of that can be combined and mapped together such that, you know, you can potentially be alerted if you're eligible for a clinical trial or something like that or a new drug, right? So there'll be a lot more interconnectivity between diagnostics and therapeutics. Right. But is my that, hope... So, so is that like your guys' thesis on Teladoc, that that company potentially could be one of those companies that bring together you know, different testing visits, you know, images, whatever, all together history into some type of cohesive, comprehensive system that basically creates more value than, you know, if the services were all yeah. just, just disjointed. Yeah, exactly. So that that's definitely part of it. I mean, it's not, it's not like a, a singularity, like this is yeah. either going to happen or it's not. It's more like a, a cherry on top, but absolutely something that we think is inevitable. I mean, for these tests to become standard of care, meaning done for more than 50% of patients, they have to have a large scale distribution function. They have to be embedded very easily within clinical workflows. Um, Ultimately, this is a service business, right? I think people get really hung up on the technology, including me. I mean, I love talking about it I could forever. But um, if you can't make it accessible, if you can't explain what's happening to everyone, regardless of where they end up on an economic or educational or, or demographic or whatever, it's got to be, we've got to, we've really got to drive for, for health equity and not just on the patient side, but on the physician side, right? So like, 80% of cancer patients in the U.S. are treated in regional community clinics that don't have these massive sponsored clinical trial programs. How do we bring diagnostics to them at the edge and make them just as performant? A lot of the statistical models that we have for understanding um, disease predisposition, the machine learning and statistics were all done on, on people of northern Caucasian ancestry, meaning they're less performant for people who don't match up to that lineage. These are the types of like roadblocks that we really have to crack in order for this to break into full mainstream. And a lot of the companies that we're looking at are actively pursuing and many have accomplished and eliminated some of those obstacles. So, you know, I think with cancer, because I think that's where your question originated, like with liquid biopsy, 
I think we'll see over the course of 20 years or 30 years, something that's happened uh, with like cardiovascular disease, right? So prevention has made a huge dent on the prevalence of, of you know, severe cardiac arrest and, and myocardial infarction and heart attack and things like that. Um, we've not seen a similar thing happen in cancer. And that's for a lot of the reasons we've already discussed around technological limitations. But I absolutely see a scenario where at some point this becomes something that we don't necessarily look at as a life altering, you know, singularity event, but something that is is more chronic in, in nature. And it, it's going to take time for us to get there. Um, but, you know, the way that it happens couldn't be clearer to me. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone who's really understanding the way that this is developing can come up with an argument against you know, the inexorable expansion of liquid biopsy, right? Yeah. So, so um, you know, it's just figuring out the timing, right? Because being wrong on timing is being wrong. So yeah, that's the, that's the tricky part. But exactly. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what are kind of with liquid biopsies, what are the, the easiest cancers right now to that can be detected? And what are the cancers in the next few years that have tests, let's say, coming online? And then also, what are some cancers that are just really, really hard? Like, that's going to take some time. Yeah, so it, the, my answer is going to be different depending on if you're talking about, you know, like advanced cancer versus screening, right? Because it's a little okay. different there. Um, so in the advanced cancer setting, which is when you are, um, you know, matching people to therapy, we can, we can do this. We can do liquid biopsy for pretty much all of them at this point. Um, it depends on the approval, right? So there are some tests that are only approved for like lung cancer, for example. But there are some examples of tests that have what's called uh, a pan-cancer indication, meaning, you know, you can use them on, on any solid cancer, for example. And um, one of the ways that, that actually works, um, th there's an approach called a tumor-informed approach, which is where... Um, you know, once a patient has a piece of tumor tissue biopsied, which is, you know, very standard under a normal clinical workflow for treatment, you can take that piece of tissue, you can fingerprint it and understand the mutations that are unique to that patient's tumor and use that information to design like an N of one bespoke liquid biopsy just for them. So that, you know, when they're going on through their treatment, you're looking for the signature in that specific tumor and you're able to call it right. So, so wow. th that's that's, that's pretty much pan, yeah, yeah pan tumor. Oh. Screening, screening is a different story. Screening is still a, a tough nut to crack. I think the furthest along are, um, you know, colorectal cancer for sure mm -hmm. is the most mature because of, of Cologuard. Um, I think over the course of the next few years, you will probably see more blood-based single cancer tests for uh, lung cancer, uh, prostate, um, esophageal, um, liver cancer are probably the ones I would say are furthest along in terms of technology development. There are also the multi-cancer tests, right, which go after dozens of these things at the same time. Um, it's a bit of an ongoing debate around how single and multi-cancer will prolifer uh, proliferate and kind of work together. Um, Regardless of that, I think there are some cancers that are extremely challenging, and it's not necessarily always because of the biopsy, or excuse me, because of the biology, but because of what happens next. And I'll give a very specific, specific example. Ovarian cancer 
if a person is suspected of having it, the next step is typically very severe, right? And almost always involves uh, pretty invasive surgery. So the consequence of yielding a false positive is actually quite high, meaning that the bar that you have to surpass from an accuracy standpoint is that much higher. So it's, it's partially a technological limitation and partially what happens when the technology starts to become practical and you have to consider, you know, none of these tests exist in a vacuum. There are things that happen before and after and they're going to dictate, you know, kind of the rubric of which cancers get, get liquid biopsies first. But if you ask me, you know, flash forward and, and, you know, by the end of this decade, I would be shocked if there weren't multiple competing low-cost options to detect dozens of cancers from a single blood draw. Got it. Um, have you guys done a Wright's Law kind of analysis on liquid biopsy? So for every cumulative doubling, right, of tests given, is there a certain percent that the costs go down for these liquid biopsy tests? It's a really good question. We've done it for the input side. So all the different things that have kind of enabled the overall price of the test to come down. Um, the issue, Dave, honestly, is something that has had, actually, this is one of the reasons this is a throwback to the very, very beginning of this conversation around Illumina, which is why did the price stop declining? Was it because there was a technological, you know, either with liquid biopsy or with sequencing, like was, was there a reason that it stopped? And so I, I want to draw the analogy just to say that the cost to do a liquid biopsy is definitely following a Wright's law curve in terms of the underlying cost of goods to produce that thing. But once you're locked into a reimbursement code, you don't really have any motivation to lower your price or get a new rate. It's not until multiple companies are coming in and bidding under you that there's any change in pricing. So the reason I bring that up is just to say that there's a disconnect between the technology improving and the change in actual market price. If anything, that delta becomes margin for the vendor, right? And so there are definitely companies, though, that break away from that. And Vitae is a great example, right? They're the only company, to our knowledge, in this space that actually has a patient pay option for any of these tests that is low price, right? And it's it's partially because of of the reason of like access and volume versus, you know, wanting to to have a a high reimbursement price. Um, But yeah, just to kind of emphasize that there is a bit of dislocation on being able to track it when, uh, you know, there's a lot of price fixing in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think that's a concern going forward for these new technologies? You're dealing with, you know, a healthcare system, a pharma system, that's you know, it might not be the most efficient and it's, it could be entrenched with, I don't know, just lots of bureaucracy and, um, you know, lobbying politics, et cetera, that it's not necessarily a, a clean, you know, innovation wins that market type of situation. It's, it's much more complicated. Um, in that type of environment, um, yeah, does that slow down innovation? Does that change things at all for you guys when you're looking at this? Um, yeah, what's your take? It, it does, right? So there's a funny joke. I mean, it's not funny, but like guidelines are about five to 10 years behind bleeding edge of technology. And then payment is another five or 10 years behind that, right? So you're absolutely right. There's a huge lead lag effect between what we can do 
and what the system is willing to pay you for. Mm-hmm. And does it slow down innovation? Yeah, absolutely. However, you also have to understand the opposite side of this, which is if you create a system that's too lax, you'll have bad actors who are trying to push pseudoscience and actually gunk up the whole system. You don't want that either. So there has to be a healthy balance between those two things. I'm not saying that we have one, but I'm saying that there is a downside to, to you know, loss of regulation. Now, what you're saying, though, about, you know, hey, it might be a while before reimbursement comes online um, from payers, you know, what, 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 how does that affect your modeling or what companies you choose? And it's a really good question. It's actually this, one of the central tenets to, uh, you know, a guiding principle for all of our diagnostic company valuation, which is that inevitably there will be pricing erosion over time on these things. Um, it's also going to take a while for payment to come in the first place. And so what you kind of have to get your head around is like, which of these companies have business models that are not just sort of a race to the bottom on pricing, right? What are other ways that these companies can monetize their businesses or create other cash flow streams on top of just testing that give them a durable advantage in the marketplace? And so there are companies now, and again, I don't want to single them out, but Invitae is a great example of a company that tests at such a scale that they've actually created a, you know, now a separate line item that is essentially a data and platform business where they've convened other people, other actors who are willing to pay for a diagnostic test who may not be an insurer. What I mean by that is in some cases, low-cost patient pay can be a way that you know these things get sped up. In some cases, you'll have biopharma companies who are trying to find patients to enroll in their trials, and they're willing to fork over some money too, right? And that happens, again, faster than an insurer acts. You have employers who are increasingly focusing on healthcare benefits, especially within the fertility space, who are also willing to take some of that money, right? So if you can convene enough different groups of people who are willing to pay a certain market rate for a test, even if the insurer is lagging behind by a couple of years, not only can you monetize a test as soon as it's, you know, functionally and, you know, has gone through a certification, there are obviously bars for that. But once you go through that process, you're beating people who are relying on commercial um, or public payment. Um, and then also, you know, you can charge a platform fee for, you know, finding patients um, who are you know eligible for certain things, doing you know mutation interpretation as a service. Like, what is that? What is that? You know, X factor on top of just you know, here's my test, here's the billing code. You know, do the math on that. Um, that's still the main model, and it's probably going to be for some time. But if we, you're going to talk about a long-term durable business, it, it can't just be, you know, the the specialty kind of classic diagnostic model. Yeah, here you. Um, let me ask you about uh, Invite and Isaac Sciences a little bit more. So, Invite, um, what's going on with them? I mean, their market cap, I think, is down to what six hundred million dollars. They're a large company, twenty nine hundred employees, and Invite has actually dropped in your ArcG fund to uh, number forty, I think, holding right now. Um, they have decent revenue growth, and they're touted by you know a lot of people as having this more platform, you know, for for not for a lot of services people. This, one-stop shop to do everything. Um, but they also seem to be burning a lot of cash. Um, what's going on with Invite? Like, do they still have potential, you think, in the future? Um, 
are there certain challenges and struggles that they're needing to overcome, you know, to, to make things happen? Like what's your take on that company? Yeah. So, I mean, same thing, I think that's been happening, you know, in the context of the broad market, you know, everything is getting axed. I mean, even the safe havens like Illumina are in the same position, but to your point, this drawdown has been more severe, but I think context is important. Um, when you talk about, you know, decent top line growth, this is actually the industry leading revenue growth, right? I mean, they're for the past few years have been putting up between 30 and 50%. You know, this year they're kind of guiding out of that Omicron wave hit, you know, back to something that resembles 30 or 40% uh, top line on guidance. Um, you know, it, it's, it's tough for me to prognosticate exactly why the stock is where it is, except to say that I think people are, you know, again, to your point, concerned about cash burn, concerned about like the simple calculus of like, you know, they've got something like eight or 900 million in the bank, but they use a ton of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think largely in, in biotech, people are, I think people are not used to seeing R&D budgets that are that big, and they don't necessarily understand where the money is going, right? Mm -hmm. So it's categorized under operating expense, right? The money that you put into R&D. So on your financial statements, it appears solely as an expense, and not often do people think about, like, what exactly is R&D? I mean, we're not having a cash bonfire in our backyard. The, the money turns into something. What is it? When does it hit? Is it a new product? Is it a way to save on cost? Right. So we have meticulously unpacked all of their line items on R&D, um, you know, over the past several years. So we have a you know, good understanding of what they spend their, their money on. Um, but I, I, th I again, I think, you know, with the atypical cash consumption and their financials and how people think of them, they're equally atypical in terms of the ambition and the business model. Right. I go back to what I said about you know, this company has a legitimately scaling, um, you know, enterprise data and platform components. They're also the broadest in terms of the different disease areas that they touch. So everything from kind of neonatal exome and genome sequencing to, you know, early life planning, predisposition, you know, women's health, reproductive, every type of, of cancer, you know, um, you know, germ, well, you know, hereditary and acquired mutations, liquid biopsy, solid tumor, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's not just oncology, it's, it's everything. And the idea behind it is if you can not only improve access by, by lowering costs, but you can actually create a situation where you're helping usher patients through their specific, you know, care pathway, whatever that means for them. And you're making actionable all of this genomic data. And also the fact that Invitae has a very deep relationship with clinical data, right? So ripping information out of unstructured clinical notes and images and handwriting and all these sorts of things and then you know merging that with the genomic data and using that to help guide you know patients and physicians um you know we, we think that they're kind of in a really great position to overcome some of the key scaling challenges that are going to affect other companies in the space especially with regard to labor because that lab is so automated in, in ways that others are not so from our point of view, you know, nothing has really changed. Suffice to say that this market is absolutely punishing anything that has, you know, a low cash reserve relative to yeah. its cash burn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've been very clear with saying, look, you know, we're not going to go back and do another public equity raise. We've, you know, pulled all the levers we need to pull in terms of, you know, reducing operating spend. It's just, it's going to be about execution for the next few quarters. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. think anyone is thinking about it as like, this is a weak company. It's just yeah. right now, no one has patience for 
Got it. Vision. They, yeah. they want solvency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, the second company is Exact Sciences. We referred to them a bit. So they are, I think, your uh, ArcG's uh, number one holding in your guys' genomics ETF, $7 billion market cap. Um, the question I had with them is they seem to be, you know, like one of the clear leaders, right, in diagnostics, especially with Cologuard, their stool test. Um, but their revenue doesn't seem to be growing as fast as I would like it to. Like, for example, 2020 is one and a half billion revenue. 2021 is 1.75, and they're guiding 2 billion in 2022. So, I mean, that type of revenue growth doesn't really get me that excited. Um, and the second thing is, out of $486 million revenue in Q1, almost half, so $232 million is marketing. Um, and it's like, that's, I don't know if it's a red flag, but it just seems like they're spending a lot on marketing. Um, so, I mean, yeah, and they, they had a loss. I put down $170 million loss. I'm not sure um, what their, I think that was their cash flow loss as well as their, their income loss. But so what's up with these exact science, sciences? I mean, I'm excited about, you know, this diagnosis field. I'm excited about all this stuff that's this ushering in, right, of this new revolution and testing, et cetera. But I'm not I'm not seeing the, the the revenue growth that I would like in this company. Is there something I'm missing? Um, yeah, what's your take? This is you know it seems like your top companies in terms of holding. So what can you kind of shed light um, on this? So let, let's start at the top with um, with revenue. I mean, mm -hmm. you would be hard pressed to find any company in the space that was able to navigate through the entirety of the pandemic without having severe disruptions to the organic kind of underlying what's going on. For exact specifically, you know, there were long stretches of COVID where physician access, the ability to take tumor tissue, whether it's for you know the tumor, the tissue side of the business or the liquid. The ability to get people in and, you know, delaying and screening, right? These were all real effects that, that absolutely crushed the normal practice of oncology um, within the U.S. and around the world. So the first thing to understand is you have to look at the past 18 months, two years, and the context that these businesses have, you know, were severely disrupted. And then you kind of have to ask yourself the question of, are they permanently disrupted, right? Is there a reason to make the argument that their top-line growth is going to continue to decay, or is it going to stabilize at some kind of super normal rate and, and continue to inflect uh, from there? We fall more into the latter category for a couple of reasons. So the first one is, you know, again, going back to everything we've talked about, about the durability of the underlying you know, oncology is their focus. The second thing is looking at their pipeline, right? So over the past two and a half years, this company went from, you know, mostly being focused on Coligard to something that through both organic and through M&A, they were able to you know, expand their business considerably across different components of oncology. I think about 75% of their R&D budget is being spent on pipeline tests. The next 18 months are gonna be the richest in terms of data productivity and clinical trial readouts of any time in the company's history. A lot of that is gonna be in support of launching new tests, which you know, they're gonna start to trickle out over the next year or two. And that's going to add on top of, um, you know, the top line growth. The other thing to think about is, again, just like the context of what they've accomplished so far. I mean, you think about just within three years, I think I mentioned earlier that they had tested something like two million people with Coligard. You know, between the time and the start of the pandemic, they doubled that to 2.1 million. 
I think today they're standing at around 9 million people cumulatively across 300 or something thousand different unique healthcare providers. The majority of primary care physicians in the U.S. are you know, deeply ingrained in exact workflows um, you know, for cancer screening. So it's a situation where we, we do feel like they're very structurally entrenched in a way that is difficult for other companies to kind of recapitulate. The other thing is thinking about it from the perspective of, look, you know, if we have this many samples coming through the door every year and we're running the machine learning and doing the training, doing the experimentation on this huge bolus of data, you know, you get back to what you were talking about earlier with the ability to kind of train better algorithms and create products that are competitive um, with others out there. So that's certainly a component. Now, Exact is also one of the two companies in the landscape right now that actually has a multi-cancer screening test with data, you know, out there in the world. And so we think this is going to contribute a lot to growth, say, you know, in the 2025, 2026 era, as these things start to actually pan out and physicians figure out how to use them. Um, so, you know, across the board, it's a situation where, again, we feel like it's, you know, a super strong company, extremely vertically integrated as well. Um, they've bought a lot of, you know, we, we don't like to see companies just acquire to buy revenue and add it to their, their top line. We like to see very focused, like technology oriented acquisitions that are done pretty cheap. Um, you know, they vertically integrated so much of their stack that you'll see they have like industry leading growth, mar gross margins somewhere in the 75, 80% range, which we think are going to continue to stabilize or continue to go up because of some of these technology investments. So, you know, again, and the last thing I'll say is by having products in place across the entire cancer care continuum, which is unique, not entirely, but quite unique to exact, they're in a great position to be able to get margin on SGNA, like you mentioned, for example, where once a patient is tested and one of these different clinical use cases, you don't spend any more money on like outbound sales or physician contact because they're locked in to that system. And that's where you start to get kind of the interesting SGNA leverage um, uh, capabilities. And then finally, you know, on, on um, cash flow, it's interesting. I go back to what I said about R&D and the fact that for many of these companies, R&D flows in like a multi-year cycle where you have the ability to kind of pull back on R&D temporarily if you need to kind of shutter against the less forgiving market without taking away your near-term growth because you paid for it three years ago. Um, and the benefit of that is exactly if you look at exact sciences throughout the course of the pandemic, um, there was a quarter where I think, and I, if I remember this right, um, we were, the entire market was just very scared around what was going to happen with Delta. And within one quarter, they were actually able to flip to, I believe, a positive cash flow yield by doing some of this different, you know, lever pulling that I mentioned. So it's, again, a situation where there is a lot of flexibility, we think, in the underlying, you know, ability for this company to manage the business and, and scale it. Um, and we think they're really the adults in the room, you know, having been the only company to bring a novel screening technology through the FDA, through the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Um, so yes, there's going to be competition. There is competition. Um, liquid biopsy, as you can imagine, is a huge market that people are very excited about getting into. But ultimately, we think that the commercial channel and the expertise and regulatory that this company has built over the past 15 years is, is really locking it into a deeply entrenched uh, position in the marketplace. Makes sense. Um, yeah, I love um, Exact Sciences 
mission statement, uh, we aim to eradicate cancer and the suffering it causes through tests that help prevent cancer detected earlier and guide treatment. Um, yeah, I mean, they seem to be focused, you know, on a problem that I think um, really hits a lot of people. Um, so I want to move on. Okay, so we've got, um, we've got, I think, the three key, three keys that we were talking about in the very beginning. We've got um, screening or let's say sequence or uh, say screen sequencing right um so let's, and we talked about the tools and we moved into the diagnostics with the good biopsies um and then the third thing is um i want to um get your opinion on kind of therapeutics so what to do um um uh, next after kind of you know you you do a test or di you diagnose something right um so in terms of um yeah, therapeutics. Would you say is is gene editing and CRISPR kind of your guys's kind of big, most exciting kind of area with the, this third area of therapeutics? Yeah, you know, gene editing and the ability to manipulate genes as therapy is is the kind of the consequence. If you think about you know DNA sequencing and reading DNA, but we have the ability to edit it or or even write it from scratch. That's called synthetic biology. Um, yeah, it's definitely like a fundamental pillar of, you know, potentially new therapies for inherited diseases and for acquired ones like cancer. But our toolkit is broadening, right? So, you know, there are other different techniques, some of them you may have heard of, like prime editing or base editing that are just tools in the toolkit. You know, they're going to be better for certain types of manipulations of the genome than others. Um, and so we, we think that, yes, these things are still in pretty early stages, but the benefit of again, having the costs come down so much, like compared to older gene editing techniques, it just makes science so much more accessible for everybody to begin like trying their best to improve it. And when you can expand accessibility, you start getting innovation. And I think that's one of the reasons why CRISPR really burst onto the mainstream um, and helped to, you know, allow certain companies to build, you know, what are now kind of therapeutic dynasties on it. Um, and we're going to continue to kind of get new therapeutic modalities um, that are going to be, again, kind of focused on different disease areas. Um, we're also very excited about the combination of um, biology and machine learning, ex, you know, done at very large scale. Um, it's called dry lab computation and wet lab biology. You put them together and there are tons of interesting approaches from companies like Schrodinger, Recursion, Excientia, you know, folks who are, are really trying to figure out ways to industrialize the process of drug discovery. And on a high level, the objective is to decrease the likelihood that a therapy will fail um, as you're trying to develop it um, and improve essentially the R&D efficiency of that process, which has kind of been decaying over the past few years. Um, but again, it leverages the same technology, right? So there's a lot of sequencing that's happening not just to create and, and figure out, you know, the genetic underpinnings of disease, but also back to what I said about finding patients and enrolling them. Because ultimately, it's not just about discovering a drug, but developing it, it requires yeah. you to start, um, you know, getting into clinical trials and, and things like that. And, yeah. you know, a lot of these drugs, they're designed to target specific, you know, alterations, mutations, or phenomena that are happening inside of the body. So you can imagine the ecosystem that starts to flourish when you have unfettered access to that information and you can speed up this cycle of design build test where it used to take months to do this, you know, you can do it in hours. Right. So that's the, that's the way that this continues to, to kind of play out here. Yeah. Um, 
So Simon, I, I want to um, probably wrap it up here, but I think this area of therapeutics, I think we can go on for another couple hours. You know, there's a lot of companies in your, your guys' portfolio, like CRISPR Technologies and others that, that focus on gene editing, but other therapeutics. Um, I'd love to talk about the, the timeline of, you know, how these therapies get on the market, you know, the different stages they're in, machine learning and, you know, uh, pushing forward, mm -hmm. you know, drug discovery, a bunch of stuff. I mean, therapy seems like a huge issue or a huge area, you know, of development and growth um, in this field. So why don't we do this? Um, um, I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see. But if you're open to it, I'd love to invite you on um, maybe in a few months. I'm on a long a uh, family RV trip this whole summer, but maybe after I come oh, back. Oh, congrats. Love to, yeah, yeah, it's like a, a, a long break, but I'd love to have you back on to kind of focus on this third area of therapeutics and really dive into what CRISPR, you know, Cas9 gene editing is all about. What are the different, you know, approaches? How can we understand, right, the therapeutics angle? Because I think this, so far, like just understanding, you know, the sequencing, the tools and the diagnosis areas, like that's been fascinating. This is like giving, I think, a great foundation for me and all of the people listening, you know, to to better understand this, you know, um, hugely uh, important and uh, yeah, interesting field, right, of genomics. Um, so, anyways, I want to thank you for your time. I'll go ahead and link to your Twitter profile in the video description. Um, are there any other places people can find you, um, connect with your work? Um, yeah, so t Twitter is going to be the the best bet. Um, you know, I, I think. Linking that is is perfectly sufficient. You know, I'm I'm happy to um to to come on and focus on a different thing. I mean, it, it's so like you can see why this is very hard to put in a five minute CNBC yeah, spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But 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 I'm you know I mean look it's my it's my favorite thing to do to talk about it and I'd, yeah. I'd be happy to to come awesome. on and, and and do more. So cool. and again, thanks for the the chance to be able to do it. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, yeah, fun time. I uh, love this stuff. Yeah, uh, getting to the weeds. Thanks, Simon. And yeah, we'll definitely talk later. All right. Okay. Thanks a lot, Dave. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.